I don't know about you, but my grandpa Foreman, uh, every, he, he liked to mess with his grandkids. And I do know that that has spilled over to me. I have one granddaughter, and it is a blast just to give her a hard time. And uh, she thinks she broke uh, grandpa this weekend, where the only thing he could say was no, no, no. And, uh, but my grandpa Foreman, when we were growing up, every time a holiday would come around, uh, he would try to convince us that he had the Easter bunny, that he had Santa Claus tied up in the shed, uh, and that he would... That, 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 that holiday person wasn't going to be able to do what they were supposed to do on that holiday. And when we were little, it worried us a little bit. When we were 25, 26, we started to get the idea that he was just kidding uh, with us, that he didn't have them tied up. But he, he had a term for what he would do. And he would, he would chuckle, and he had, this, he had this big belly laugh when he got tickled. And he, uh, he, he would just say, I snookered you. Anybody ever heard that word before, snookered? I think it's a card game also. Uh, it, it's what? That's a snickerdoodle. <laughs> now I'll call it a snickerdoodle forever, but uh, but snook it's 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 slang. It's a verb. It, it, it means it means that we've been tricked, we've been enticed, we've been trapped, we've been deceived, we've been cheated, or we've been duped. And my grandpa used it playfully, but church, we've been duped. We have let culture define and dictate so many important aspects of our lives. We've been led to believe that we should be walking around with our heads down in shame because of what we believe and who we believe in. We, we have been led to believe that the church is dying all across the, all across the globe because maybe it's taking a hit in our backyard. We, and we've been led to think that there's nothing that we can do about that, that it's just, just the flow, just go with the flow. We've been led to believe that life is hopeless, so we live this joyless life, ignorant or um, unaware of all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. And we worship everything but the one true God, and we lazily fall prey to this vast array and this constant barrage of temptations and invitations and ignore all that God is and all that God offers. So we walk around defeated. We walk around with our shoulders bent over, beaten up, downtrodden, upset, scared, worried, hungry for more, hangry because we can't find what we're looking for because we're looking in the wrong places. All because... We have allowed the wrong thing, the wrong things to define and dictate the most crucial areas in our life. The truth is, church, that we have every reason to live triumphantly. We have every reason to live joyfully. Is the world bad? Yeah. Is the world worse than, than it used to be? That's up for debate. Will you be persecuted for your faith? Well, if you're actually bold enough to live your faith out in public view, yes, you are definitely going to be persecuted for your faith. Does, the, does death hurt? Do relationships suffer? Does cancer destroy? Is culture at odds with God's design? Yes, 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 and yes. But, and this is a supernaturally powerful, un, incomparably loving, Completely sovereign, but Jesus has won. God is victorious. 
anything in this world, Paul reminds us, as long and as dark as that valley may be, as terrible as relationships being, uh, being choked is, as, as, as tough as that is, as, as terrible as sickness is on us, Paul reminds us that in the grand scheme of eternity, which if you are a believer, that's what you have in front of you is eternity. In the grand scheme of eternity, anything that we walk through now is but a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. And if you are his, if you belong to him, man, oh man, do you have something to smile about in this life and eternity. And if you are his, if you belong to him, you can have this supernatural joy in this life, not happiness, because happiness is, is, is contingent on what happens around us, on, on who we're hanging out. Happiness is, happiness is up and down, up and down. But joy, our joy is contingent only upon the fact that the most powerful being ever decided to create us. And when we rebelled against him, he pursued us and he chased us down lovingly and relentlessly. And he came to earth and lived a life we couldn't live, died a death that should have been ours a hundred times over, walked out of a grave, defeating sin and death forever. And not just us, but all of creation is he coming to redeem. So that should lead us to have this this, this smile ingrained on our face. Did you ever spit your tongue out when you were a kid or blow raspberries and your grandma said, if you keep doing that, your face is going to freeze that way. Our faces should be frozen, church, with this smile that comes from un incomparable joy that cannot be quenched because, not because of what is going on around us, because of the God who created us, pursued us, and redeemed us. So how do, we stay how do we stay focused when it's so easily to become distracted and when everything else, with everything else going around it? Well, if you were to go downstairs right now and ask Gretchen or Katie's kiddos, right, the answer to that question, they're going to give you the best Sunday school answer ever. It's either going to be God or Jesus, right? Parents, you know, when you're driving home after church, you ask, what did you talk about today? God. Right, and you you you, you want to talk about uh, the the next question is uh, whatever it is Jesus. Well, yes, it's God. But where do we go to find the most about God? Now we can experience Him in creation, as many of us do. Some of us on the golf course, some of us at the beach, some of us with our grandkids in our arm. But when we where we want to find the most about God is in this book right here. And when we go that, we can almost just do that and find something about God on those pages. We can start way back in Genesis and see a God so powerful that all he has to do is speak and things exist. We could go to Exodus and we can see a God so creative and so magnificent that he performs these 10 miracles, these 10 plagues to redeem his people from slavery. We can follow him through the pages of the, New, the Old Testament and watch him raise up man after man and woman after woman to lead his people, to give us just glimpses of what is coming in Jesus Christ. We can get to King David and we can, we can see the promises that he made that my, my line, the savior of the world is going to come through this line King, from King David. We can go to the, to the pages of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we can see where God came to earth and took on flesh and for 33 years lived like we did except that he didn't fall to sin. 
And we can see how he, was, uh, how he was betrayed, how he was denied, how he was arrested and beaten and crucified and killed for us. We can see in the pages of the, the beginning pages of Acts how he, he spent some time with his, his, his closest disciples, but then he was taken up to heaven. And we can see the church explode in a good way after that. How those who, who heard Jesus and saw Jesus and were saved by Jesus took seriously the commission to go and they went. And we can read on the pages of the epistles how, how, how some of those apostles, some of those disciples encouraged the young church to remain true. Remember what you were taught. And we can see the church grow and grow and grow. And we can see on every page of scripture, God. And it should put a smile on our face and joy deep down in our hearts. But maybe... The best place to go is maybe the least obvious place. And it's that final book in your Bible, Revelation. We can go to Revelation and we can see God. Now remember, we've been duped. We've been snookered. And a lot of, we've also been snookered in how we read, how we interpret, and how we apply the book of Revelation. Rather than walking around dejected and hungry and sad, we should walk around with joy and we can see why in Revelation. We can see what the face of a believer should look like. Revelation has this brilliance and this beauty that outshines any of our attempts to understand it fully. When you think you just start to wrap your mind around something in Revelation, you, you read it again and God just explodes your mind. And you can read and read and read, and it's filled with this amazing, amazing imagery and symbolism. It's a special type of writing, and we have, to be, we have to remember that when we read it. Revelation is a part of apocalyptic literature. That means that we don't read it like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is just narrative, and it's a story of Jesus' life, and we can just take that for what it is. Yeah, there's a little bit in there when he ta starts talking in parables and that type of thing, but it's narrative. When you come to apocalyptic literature, right, it, it is there to interpret the present earthly reality and circumstances in light of the supernatural world. It, it, it really, and I've shared this with you before, it's like in the Wizard of Oz when they get to the end and they go back and they're looking for the wizard, they're looking for the wizard and then they pull back the curtain and then they see this person who's been orchestrating all the things that have happened throughout their journey to Oz. Revelation allows us to peer behind the curtain and to see what's going on. We live in the physical world. Every once in a while, we get glimpses of the spiritual world. But Revelation pulls it back so that we can see what the, the war, the battle, the fighting that is going on, the celebration that is going on now and into the future. And it is ripe, ripe, ripe with symbolism. Then we should, we should add in there that apocalyptic literature... This type of literature is not meant to scare you to death. It's meant to encourage you. It's meant to tell you to hold on a little bit longer. Not just for some day in the end when Jesus is coming back to get us all, but every day in between to keep holding on, to keep fighting. And then we see this symbolism all throughout. Now, there is a bad way to read Revelation. Okay? And if you have read it this way before, right, you can be mad at me, that's okay, but I think you're wrong. Because sometimes we read Revelation with our Bible right here, 
in our newspaper spread out on the table over here. And then we went to our box of Fruit Loops and pulled out the decoder ring, and we have it in our hand too. And we're trying to take this and, make th and fit it into what's going on here all the while we're spinning this wheel trying to figure out what's going on. When is Jesus coming back? What, what are the signs going to be? Guys, that, that, there's a lot of problems with that. One, right, it is arbitrary. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, I've been alive for 51 years now, but there have been a lot of guys who have said, hey, Jesus is coming back July the 13th, 1972. You know what didn't happen? He didn't come back. And we, there's people predicting this all the time. Look at the signs. Look at what's happening across the world. Look at what's happening here. Look what they printed in the paper or in Newsweek. There are people, and we try to decide what's going to happen out there. The problem is that is arbitrary, and they've been wrong, wrong, wrong. They're going to be wrong in the future. And if you're one of those persons who's trying to predict when Jesus is coming back, can you do something for me? Stop. Because every time you predict it, I think it pushes that day just a little bit further. And you know what I would like to happen? I would like for Jesus to come back and take us all home. The other thing is that it's inconsistent. Because we have all this symbolism and we all have all this, Im this imagery and we try to mesh those together. Sometimes we take things for face value. Sometimes we take them symbolically. And it can mess with us when we try to force things into the same mold. Do any of us truly believe that Jesus Christ has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? But it speaks to the power. It's symbolic of the power that he carries and how powerful his truth is. So... Let's, let's quit that because it's arbitrary, it's inconsistent, and there is enough in the other 65 books of Scripture for us to be able to interpret and apply what Revelation is getting at. There is nothing new in the book of Revelation. It's, everything in there has been covered before. The Bible is a much better tool for interpreting uh, than the New York Times, than the Parkersburg News and Sentinel. Okay? And there's a better reason, right, why we shouldn't do that. If you go over to like Matthew chapter 24, right, Jesus is talking there a little bit and he says something like, you know what, according to the day, according to the time, nobody knows when I'm coming back. When he was on earth, he said not even the son knows that day, knows that time. So, but we have this revelation and read, read creatively, read with the imagination it should put hope in our heart and a smile on our face. It's full of amazing, sometimes frightening imagery, but it's not meant to scare us. It's written to encourage us. And it's the same theme that we get all throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is better. Better than what anything the world can offer you, here and in eternity. But equally, it's a challenge for us to also avoid temptation uh, or, or avoid the seduction of sin. Immorality, idolatry, adultery, false worship, two main themes in the book of Revelation, not the only ones, but two main themes in the book of Revelation are persecution and seduction. Persecuted, persecution for those who are believing, but also a warning to watch out for the seduction that's coming from Satan for those who believe. 
We're going to spend the next, today and the next three weeks, looking at Revelation 17, 18, and 19 from different angles. I encourage you to read it uh, several times. I actually encourage you to go back and read it from chapter 1 instead of just sort of plopping yourself down in the middle of it. But in chapter 17, 18, and 19, there are these groups of two. There are two invitations, two women, and two meals. All six of those things represent, I did math right, Brett, you get that, right? All six of these things are symbolic of something much larger than an invitation, a woman, or a meal. So let's, let's look at this a little bit. Uh, if you have, we're going to be in the, 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 the stomping ground, the main stomping ground is going to be chapter 19. But if you go back to chapter 17, right, and just look at the beginning of this chapter, we begin to pick up on the symbolism that is there. He has just finished talking about the seventh bowl, uh, all of these filled with, uh, with different judgments and different types of wrath. And in ver- chapter 17, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, John is not talking about a literal um, prostitute or harlot and kings who have snuck into her bed. He's talking about something much grander. Uh, the, The word great prostitute Right? I like how the Christian Standard Bible has this. They use the word notorious. Right? Sometimes the word harlot is used there. But that word great, megalis, it talks about in the widest sense. That's what it means, in the widest sense. The word for prostitute or harlot is pornais, right? which means an adulterous, adulterous company. So it's talking about this wide, expansive adulterous community. And that's what this prostitute, or that's what Babylon is referring to. Evil that stands opposed to God. Evil that stands in opposition to God and who he is. And so I want you to look at what this woman looks like. It looks good. And don't you wish that sin looked nasty? If sin was terrible, I mean, it would be easier for us to say no to it. But sin is tempting. Sin sin, sin entices us. Look at how this this vast array of idolatrous community is described. Down in 17 verse 4, the woman was arrayed. She was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a, 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 a golden cup. It looks good. And that's the whole power behind sin is that it looks good. But real quickly, John tells us exactly what this is. Because in that golden cup, right, it's not Pepsi, not Mountain Dew, not a green smoothie for you healthy people. It is full of abominations and impurities. What sin offers is impure, right? If there's any doubt about how John feels about this, the the, the vision that he sees makes it clear if you keep reading down in verse five, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, 
Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That is the picture of evil, the picture of sin. And the first invitation are those kings who have accepted invitation and have been pulled in, who have been seduced by this evil. And it is not pretty. If you keep looking through 17 and 18, you see the fall of evil. You see the judgment of evil. You see all the schemes behind evil. You see mourning because of evil. It's not good at all. In verses 18 through 20, in chapter 18, verses 22 through 24, there's this picture given. And I want you to remember, like, sin, sin looks good at times. Right? And a world built on sin can look good at times. But look what happens in these verses. Chapter 18 and, and partway through verse 21. Uh, he, he said, he took up a stone and he said this, so will Babylon. Right? The Babylon right, is, is the same, that, that evil. The great city will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians, the flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will, be, will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. And for your merchants who were great ones on earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Everything, he's saying, what John is saying here is everything that is built upon evil is one day going to be taken away. Even the music that you love, even the craftsmanship and the artistry that you think is so beautiful, even the jobs that you have one day is going to be taken away. And this is what you can expect if you accept that invitation from that first woman. Evil will be destroyed. It may seem attractive, but it will be taken away. The evil that shed the blood of the church will fall. Looks dark, <laughs> looks gloomy, looks terrible. But chapter 19, a different scene appears. And if you read chapter 9, which Dave and, 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 and Amy read for us, you see, and after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. And you have this picture of this worship assembly that just keeps growing and growing and expanding and expanding, getting louder and louder and more hallelujahs going up. Four times in these few verses the word hallelujah is used. And in verse, there's this ever-increasing chorus. And look at what happens in, in, in verse number 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. So the face of a believer should be one of joyfulness. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride, there's the second woman. The first was a notorious prostitute of evil. The second, the bride of the lamb. That's the second woman. You know, not just talking about a, a, a beautiful bride in a flowing white dress. You know who she, he's talking about here? You. Me. He's talking about the church, the faithful. We've been invited into this. Let's be glad and rejoice because we've been invited. And this, the marriage supper has come. 
and she's been, we've been given new clothes to wear, bright and pure. In verse number 19, blessed, which we're going to talk about next week. Blessed are those who are invited. We're going to talk about that word invited the week after that. To the marriage feast of the Lamb. If you go over in the ni- further down into 19, there's this idea of worship. And John talks about, like, he wants to fall down and worship the angel because everything that he sees is so amazing. And the angel's like, no, stop. I'm just a servant like you. You need to worship God. And that's the final week uh, of August. Revelation 17 and 18. Oh, I'm, um, worshiping God. The, the face of the believer, church, should be joyful because we are so blessed by God. And we should be constantly and passionately worshiping because we've been invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, that's the two women and the two invitations. The only thing left are the two suppers, the two meals. And we've already read about one of them. It's this marriage, marriage feast uh, of the Lamb. This, this beautiful array this party, this celebration, this worshipful experience. Two invitations, two women, two feasts. And in this one, in the first one, you are the invited guest. Maybe your life is messed up and you realize that your life is messed up. But you've given that messed up life to Jesus. And he's transformed it. No longer are you resting on your own laurels. You're resting on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've turned your messed up life over to Jesus, the lamb. You still may mess up, but you realize. And when you mess up, it breaks your heart because you realize that it breaks Jesus's heart as well. Not because you got caught, because you know it's like crucifying your savior all over again. You fight against the seduction of the world and one day, he will be given this brand new set of clothes, pure and white, and you will be at this marriage feast of the Lamb. To this, you are invited. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is where your reservation is. If the graphic imagery of what was, will be done to those who do the seducing and who are seduced in chapter 17 and 18 isn't enough, John gives us another graphic picture here. Uh, in, in chapter 19. If you go down through 19 and you get down to verse 17 and 18, John writes this. <coughs> then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. And we think, whoa, whoa. I just finished the marriage feast of the lamb. Now we're going here. It sounds like a beach vacation where you just have seafood, seafood, seafood all the time. But don't stop reading. Because who was invited to this one? The birds. To this supper of God. (coughs) Come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. Excuse me. The first feast, the first feast, you are the invited guest. The second feast, you know what you are? You're the main course. 
There's no good way to describe what happens to those who partner with this notorious prostitute with Babylon. The imagery that John gives is so graphic. If you go back and read, and I encourage you to, these are some of the phrases used to describe. A home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Sins are piled up, and God will remember those crimes. The world will mourn. Judgment will come. Evil will be trampled out. Evil will be separated from good forever. Into the presence of darkness, there'll be destruction and judgment. There'll be this throwing down completely and grossly disassembled. And that's the picture he's given to us right here in the birds coming to devour. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's a picture of what hell is going to be like. And it leads us to, it lends us to answering the question, why would a God who created such a beautiful place, why would he create hell in which to send people to? The answer to that's pretty simple. He didn't. God did not create hell for you. It's one of the main things that we see him talking about throughout Revelation. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he tells us why hell was created. He tells us about its purpose. It was created for Satan, for the devil and his armies. God created Eden for you. God created Eden for me, and we messed it up. But he sent his son to redeem us so that we uh, could, could, could spend eternity back in a more perfect Eden. Jesus created, or God created hell for Satan and his enemies. You know what Jesus is doing right now? That's what he told his disciples. If I go, when I go, I go to prepare a place for you. Hell was not created for you. Hell was not created for your next door neighbor. Hell was not created for that person who gets on your last nerve. Hell was not created for those who, who are sinning against God in this very moment. Hell was created for Satan and his armies. And that, but that invitation to chase after all things Satan and the power of his armies is going to lead us to that same place, to a place that was not designed, was not intended for us. But if you choose that second invitation, that invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to that grand feast, you have a Savior right now in heaven preparing a place for you. So it's pretty simple this morning, church. Which invitation do you choose to accept? Do you Choose the one of seduction from the world, one that's just full of lies from Babylon, from the, from the harlot, from this notorious prostitute that leads to a place prepared for Satan and his armies. Or do you accept the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb? where you'll be given new clothes and new riches and where, where you'll be given a new dwelling place that Jesus is preparing intentionally for you. This morning, that's all I'm leaving you with, is which of those two? If you're a believer, rest assured, be joyful of what awaits you. This morning, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, allow a revelation to scare you enough 
that you see what the world truly is. Allow revelation to inform you, to, 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 to help acknowledge in your heart of hearts what the world is truly about, but let it also show you what Jesus is all about. about. Jesus came on a promise, a promise that started in the beginning pages of Scripture and goes all the way through. We do a great job of messing up our lives and messing up our eternity. There's not a one of us here, there's not a person on the planet who can perfectly keep the law of God. That's why we must put our faith in Jesus Christ so that when we stand before the judge, whenever that may be, he will not see us in our brokenness, in our rebellion, as a seduced unbeliever, but he will see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ because he died for you and he's preparing a place for you this morning.